this morning we're actually going to talk about um, those Easter eggs that remain hidden in the couch. Right? We're going to talk about uh, the fact that those eggs are going to remind us of the disciples. You'll see how in a minute, I hope. Uh, we're going to look at how Jesus finds the hidden, addresses their doubts and fears. Good job, Jeff. All the doubts and fears. Did you hear that in those songs we chose? Yeah, that was pretty good. It's Jeff's work. Um, and sends them on mission beyond locked doors. So let's pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and by your Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light and your truth, find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. So I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but a couple years ago, Katie and I were cleaning up our house, see if you remember this, um, and we found a plastic Easter egg in the couch, I don't know if you remember this, um, that remained hidden for who knows how many years before we actually found it. I have no idea how long this thing was in there. And yes, because someone's going to ask, I did strongly consider eating the contents thereof, (laughs) Um, but somebody in my family suggested that might not be such a good idea, Um, so I didn't. So anytime, I mean, I work out in the yard all the time. Many times I've actually been working in the yard over the years to find more hidden plastic eggs, right? Buried in the dirt, hidden under bushes. And I just wondered, and I don't know the answer to this, but maybe Google would help us. How many Easter eggs that were buried last Sunday or hidden last Sunday actually remain hidden today? We'd love to know that answer. My guess is we're in the millions, right? Um, And this is why I think of this, because we move on from Easter so fast that we don't even take the time to find all the stuff that we hide for our kids. Like, that's how fast we move on from Easter. But here's the thing. Easter is actually a season. It's not a day, right? And so, to be really honest, I didn't even know that until a couple of years ago. I always thought it was Easter Sunday, right? It's actually a season. It lasts, what, seven weeks through Pentecost, right? If I have this right. And so, another truth. It's also hard to deny that there's often a letdown that comes on the Sunday after Easter, you know? And so I was thinking about this a little bit. Like our grocery stores, they take the Easter lilies, Cadbury eggs, the chocolate bunnies. They all put them all in the discount rack for people like my friend Mike Boozer, anybody knows him, Um, and other like bargain holiday shoppers. Mark, all right, yes. I love the peeps. Yes. Yes. Have Have you already been? You already gotten the stuff from that? Yeah. I looked, and at Ralph's, they were all gone. Oh, oh so Mike Boozer beat you to it. <laughs> you know, I mean, look, we noticed it, right? Worship attendance is cut in half. Parking is easy to find. Uh, Dan Higgins is not playing the saxophone today, right? Um, and the story that we're going to look at in a moment is actually really fitting, because part of it takes place one week after the first Easter Sunday. And so after Jesus was raised from the dead, what we expect might have been a massive celebration, right? But instead, what we're going to find is the disciples in hiding, like our undiscovered Easter eggs. See what I did there? Thank you. Um, They're hiding behind these tightly locked, closed doors. This is where we're going to find them. And it seems that maybe the first Sunday after Easter was a bit of a letdown for the disciples, too. As hard as that is to imagine, we're going to listen in on this story, and let's see where we find them, and let's see what we find them doing. Here we go, from John 20, 19 to 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. 
After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, again, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord. I love this story. I'm not going to lie. Like, this is one of those where I wish that this were the Easter Sunday and this place was packed like it was last week. This story is worth it, right? We expect the disciples to be celebrating Easter like we do, or at least like I do, right? Alleluia's, some hidden eggs, some honey-baked ham, nana, yeah. Um, peeps for Mark, chocolate bunnies. I do have a bag, Ziploc, yeah? they're still fresh. All right, good. <laughs> <laughs> do you freeze them? <laughs> do peeps freeze? Back of the <laughs> 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 Maybe they don't need to be frozen. They last forever, anyway. Oh, that's good. Um, so, like, you know, this is the way my mind works, right? I'm thinking about these things. Like, this is the way we celebrate Easter. We expect them to at least be doing something, to be celebrating in whatever way. Uh, would have been appropriate for them. Instead, they're in hiding, and it says, for fear of the Jews. And this is interesting, too. They're not afraid of the Jews in general. Like, they're Jews, right? So what are they afraid of? They're actually afraid that these Jewish leaders that killed Jesus are going to do the same thing to them. Valid fear, right? All right. So we're with them here. (laughs) We should understand that this is pretty important. Um, And so one of the more intriguing things that I've kind of been contemplating is this. Is it also possible that they're afraid of seeing Jesus because of all their failure, all of their guilt, and all of their shame. This is what comes to mind when I see him huddled up. Remember that every single one of Jesus' male disciples, they all fled. None of them were at the foot of the cross. Uh, They'd all kind of scurried away. Uh, Maybe they locked themselves away from Jesus because they're actually afraid of his judgment, afraid of his wrath, afraid he's going to be upset for the fact that every single one of them had drifted away. Maybe seeing the Lord was more than these disciples thought they could actually bear. But here's what we learn. We learn that Jesus didn't come to judge the disciples, that he actually came to offer them peace, his peace. 
So Jesus comes offering what they don't expect. He comes offering love and forgiveness, favor and blessing, uh, which lift their shame. He doesn't even remind them of their past failures. You know, like a parent, like sometimes we like to, we're going to show the grace and the love and the forgiveness, but we're going to at least let them know, like, you screwed up, you know? Um, He doesn't even do that. He doesn't even remind them of their past failures. He just, uh, he asks them for nothing. He commands nothing. He just gives them this gift of sheer grace. And so he shows them his hands and his feet. He shows them that he's no ghost. They have this empirical, real, historical evidence that they had what they needed right there, standing in front of them, to actually believe that Jesus had been raised. And it says they're, like, they're literally filled with joy, right? And then in an important moment, Jesus, I like this word commissions, right? Think about that as a hyphen, commissions them. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. It's one of the great missional texts of all the Gospels. It's actually probably the singular text that most got me to plant this church. It was my reflection on this passage right here. Those, that one sentence. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Right? And what does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to not, to, to not listen and to not be faithful? And when contemplating that passage, I actually got to the point where I said, if I don't do this, I'm not being faithful to a call that I hear really clearly. And so that passage is actually instrumental in helping start this church. And so what we see is we see that this God that we worship is a missionary God. Our God is a sending God that Jesus wants his disciples to actually move outward into the world to reveal God to the world. And so just as we know that God breathed life into the creation in Genesis, we see Jesus breathing this kind of new life into the disciples and this new creation begins. And so in this short section of scripture, Look at all these things that Jesus has given. He's given the disciples his presence. He's given them his peace. He's given them his body as evidence of the resurrection. He's given them his mission. And then he gives them the gift of the spirit. Like all these gifts given sounds more like Christmas and Santa Claus than Easter and the bunny. But anyway, that's just my thought. Here's the thing. In order for the disciples to move out into mission, with the power of the spirit, they're going to have to do one really important thing. They have something they need to do. The first thing they need to do is they have to unlock the doors, right? They have to unlock the doors. They can't stay huddled in fear behind these locked doors if they accept Jesus' mission to be sent to the world. But Thomas, one of the 12, wasn't around when Jesus showed up. And I read one commentator. Bible commentators generally are not funny at all. Um, But I read one that said something that was actually funny. He's like, this was the single most inopportunely or irresponsibly missed church meeting in all of history. That's kind of funny. Like, all right, I'm good with that. Um, Everybody shows up except for Thomas. He's nowhere to be found. And it's like, don't you wish that John told us where he was and what he was doing? Like, I'd pay a lot. I'd pay some additional money for that Bible. You know what I mean? Um, We make up our own. Like, I think he's out golfing. What is this guy doing when everybody is there except for him, they're huddled together in fear and he's gone. Um, now, what is, what's the nickname we give Thomas in the church? What do we call him? Doubting Thomas, right? That's what we call him. Maybe he's not there because of that nickname. He has doubts. Where the others are huddled together in fear, Thomas has his doubts, right? And so maybe he's not there because of this, right? Dead people, they don't rise. Crucified messiahs are a failure. And so while the other disciples are kind of huddled together behind 
locked doors in fear. Thomas actually just ventures out alone. Who knows what he's doing and what he's thinking? Uh, no matter where he was or what he was doing, I have a really good educated guess. My money says this guy was hurting bad, right? And he just goes off somewhere to be completely alone with whatever it is, the pain that's going on inside of him. And so my favorite part of this story, to be honest, is the fact that it exists at all, right? If the evangelist John is scared of Thomas's doubt, like so many Christians that I actually hear talk about doubt, he would never have included this in his gospel. You've got to think about this is really important stuff. If he's scared of doubt, he doesn't include this story. That's what I like the best about this story. It's there. I believe that John actually treasured this story, includes it in his gospel because of its honesty and for its potential to help other people who struggle with doubt in their own lives. It's got to be why this story is here. And so Thomas, he asks for proof. He needs it. He will not, with the strong language, he says, I will not believe. He's not going to believe that Jesus has been raised on mere hearsay, right? And so our churchy response to Thomas is like the finger wag, you know? Like, can you call yourself a disciple, you know, Thomas, who doubts? Like, and to me, when we wag the finger at this guy, I think that feels dishonest, right? My question is this, is Thomas really all that different than the other ten? Is Thomas really all that different from us? Thomas gets a bad rap, but listen, he's asking for exactly what the other ten already have. He's asking for proof. The other ten, they already got it. They've already met the resurrected Christ. They've already seen him. Thomas hasn't. He's not asking for anything that the others haven't already experienced for themselves, but he wants to see it. He needs to see it for himself. Wounds and all. He needs to know with certainty that Jesus really was raised from the dead. And so, in my mind, I say we should be grateful that John has given this doubting Thomas this much space in his gospel. And when you look at how much space he gave him, how much more space did Jesus give him? Right? Jesus doesn't make him feel guilty for his doubts. He doesn't call into question Thomas's salvation. He doesn't do some of the things I've seen other Christians do to people who express genuine doubt. In fact, not only is Jesus what I just, I like to coin, I don't know who coined this term, maybe me, doubt tolerant, like drought tolerant plants. Um, Jesus is doubt tolerant. You know, he even, not only that, he goes even further than to be tolerant of it. He actually seems to honor Thomas's doubt. Like I picture Jesus having this struggling, hurting, doubting Thomas on his mind, in his heart for this whole week, this whole week that goes by. I think that Jesus probably had this guy in his mind, right? He probably couldn't wait to sit down and help Thomas's doubt become belief and turn it to faith. He wants to replace his doubts with genuine faith. He wants Thomas to have the faith that will move him outward. And so Jesus addresses these doubts head on. He offers Thomas the proof that he needs to believe. Like this moment, if you could just put yourself in this moment, can you imagine what this must have been like? Artists have painted it. Um, I'll show you one in a few minutes that is pretty cool. Can you imagine being Thomas in this moment, taking a hold of the hands of the Lord? I mean, ooh, man, it gives me goosebumps. Like, the word that comes to mind for me is overwhelmed. Like, what I imagine is Thomas in this flood of tears that were so heavy. How could he have even seen the wounds on Jesus' hands, you know? He had to be so overwhelmed. 
Like, can you put yourself in that position with all your doubts, with all your fears standing in front of the risen Christ, actually placing your fingers in his hands, your hand in his side? Like, the evidence must have been compelling. It was so compelling for Thomas that he makes a confession unlike any other in the entire New Testament. He says, my Lord and my God. Thomas gets it now. Things have changed. Things that were blurry have now come into focus. And so I'm a question asker, and it raised a couple questions for me. Questions like this. Can we, with all of our doubts and fears, can we come to believe even though we haven't seen, even though we haven't touched? Will we allow our doubts and fears to keep us hidden away, hidden behind locked doors, refusing to allow Jesus to send us out? What are the doubts and fears that we have that lock us up, that frees us up from being sent on mission? What are these things for us? Maybe they're different for each of us. And here's the thing that's probably not different for each of us. The natural tendency when we're threatened or we're afraid is to hunker down, to worry about number one, to focus on our own security rather than Jesus's mission. This is the natural human response to these things. And so I like the story, because Jesus breaks down those locked doors, or at least he glides right on through them. That's more what it says. The Easter season actually teaches us that Jesus comes not simply when we have it all together, but Jesus shows up right in the midst of doubts and fears, right in the midst of confusion, right in the midst of demands for proof that Jesus doesn't come to judge, but rather comes, again, speaking peace, breathing spirit, blessing us in order to send us. And week after week after week, Jesus keeps showing up. Why? For the promises of the world. Jesus keeps showing up week after week for those that doubt because we see that Jesus wants to turn that doubt into faith. And so we're met here on this dance floor. We're met here by Christ in the word. We're met here in the worship And Jesus continues to take people like you and I and to send us out of our locked rooms, out of our self-focus, and into this outrageous generosity. And so the story of Thomas, it actually doesn't end here. We don't see him, I don't think, in Scripture again. But the confession that Thomas makes is more like this springboard that kind of propelled Thomas into ministry. And so he didn't remain a doubter. Maybe this is the most important thing. He He doesn't remain a doubter. He actually becomes this really outspoken advocate for Christ. So here's his journey. Church history tells us this. They say that he went to ancient Babylon, modern-day Iraq. Then he went to Persia, modern-day Iran, uh, where he preached and won disciples. Then he sailed to the west coast of India in 52, where he preached and established churches there. And this is the coolest part that I think, the thing that I found on him. When the Portuguese landed in India in the 1600s, they found... This group of Christians there called the Mar Thoma Church. Guess who founded them? Thomas. A millennium and a half earlier, they're still there, right? Uh, this is incredible stuff. Finally, the last thing he did was travel to the east coast of India where he was killed in Mylapore about 72. Um, and what we see is that Thomas, he gave, his entire, he gave his life for the risen Christ. The evidence was so compelling that he gave his life while he lived and he gave his the ultimate, made the ultimate sacrifice for Christ because this evidence was so compelling to him that it changed, it changed absolutely everything. And so I love this story because I think that Thomas, this is one of those stories that speaks really well today. 
Like he's still speaking today, reminding us that God is doubt tolerant, that God deals tenderly with those who doubt, wanting to replace doubt with belief. That Jesus even seems to admit to uh, that all of us that come after Thomas, we're not going to have the same luxury, maybe the same opportunity. We're not going to have the opportunity to place our fingers in his hands and our hand in his side. But I believe that Thomas really did touch the Lord that day. I also trust in the inspired word of God that we call the Bible and see it as what a gift we have in this book. What a gift we've been given. And so I also believe that Jesus wants to offer us the same blessing that he offered Thomas. And here it is. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. Jesus said this line for all of those who would come behind. All of those who would come after Thomas, Jesus gives this Blessing, blessed are those who have not seen me, who have not had this opportunity, and yet they've come to believe. That's what makes the word so important, right? This is how we, people come to faith. There are going to be people today all over the world that come to faith because of this story. Just the reading of this story is going to bring people to faith. God's going to use it somewhere to bring new people to faith, to change their doubt into belief. And so those of us who have not seen, and yet we still believe, we're promised something at the end, which is pretty cool too. It's just Jesus says life. This full, forgiven, forever life in Jesus' name. This is what Jesus wants the world to know. It's what the reason that Jesus commissions us and sends us as his church, because we share in this mission. If Christ has been raised, then we have a job to do. And for 2,000 years, the church has been proclaiming this truth over and over, that Christ is risen. And so God is not afraid of our doubting. And God wants us actually to examine the witness of Scripture for ourselves and pray that the Holy Spirit will give us wisdom and faith. Both of those things, two things we really need. We're to pray for those things, to ask God for wisdom and for faith. Because God wants to replace our doubt with belief in his Son, who died and who rose so that we might truly live. And finally, God wants desperately to move us outward, beyond these walls, into faithful mission in his name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. God, we come to you trusting in your inspired word. We ask that by the power of your spirit and the resurrected Christ that our faith might be strengthened because we've gathered here today around the story of Doubting Thomas. God, help us as we struggle to believe and bless us when we do believe, even though we haven't seen. 